Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Well, here we go, part 13 of Galatians on Earth. For those of you who've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we've actually been looking at the primary elements that actually make up the infrastructure of the Old Covenant. And those elements and how those elements have actually changed. As you go from the Old Covenant and go into the New Covenant, we found there's been some significant changes and differences, such as with the Ten Commandments. They were written on stone under the Old Covenant, and now under the New Covenant, they are written on our hearts. You have the temple. Have them make me a mikdash, a sanctuary, that I might dwell among them. And so there was a physical temple with the presence, the dwelling presence of God. But today, under the New Covenant, we are literally called the temple of God, the dwelling presence of God. And Yeshua, he, he promised, he goes in, in John 14, that he would come and make his home within us, him and the Father. And that is through the Ruach HaKodesh. Then we looked at this other element, the mediator. Under the Old Covenant, it was Moshe. Under the New Covenant, it is Yeshua. And then we have the priesthood. It used to be the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron served as Kohen Gadol. His son served as Kohen Gadol. But under the New Covenant, it is the Messiah Yeshua. He is our Kohen Gadol. And I'm going to tell you, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I cannot possibly overemphasize what I'm about to say. Just as a reminder, these elements that we're talking about, the differences that exist between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, I'm telling you right now, you need to understand them. And for multiple reasons, you need to be able to understand. This is going to affect your faith. This is going to affect how you walk out your faith. You need to know this so that you can articulate this to others. You know, there's Christians that come to you and, and are, are really offended by the fact that you could possibly think that we should keep the law, that you should be Torah observant in light of what Yeshua, Jesus, did on the cross when he said, it is finished. How do you respond to that? Do you know how to respond? Do you know how to articulate? Yes, there have been differences, but no, God hasn't thrown out his righteousness, his commandments. Are you able to navigate through these? Because I'm going to tell you, it is so powerful. If you get this information, if you understand, if you can say, do you know the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? And you're able to step out and articulate that you are going to be powerful for the kingdom, for evangelism. To be able to, to witness to unbelieving Jews, to religious Jews, to be able to articulate this difference, to be able to navigate the Tanakh, it is going to be powerful. And so, you know, this, this part of this, you know, the whole series is important, but this part especially, because this is foundational. This is about being able to understand how I can profess Yeshua as Lord and Savior and be Torah observant. Very, very important. Well, there is one more that we need to cover, one more primary element, and that is the temple sacrifices. Under the old covenant, the sacrifices were animals, right? And, and these animals served as a substitutionary atonement. The animals were killed in place of the offeror, so that the offeror could stay alive, so that the offeror could be in relationship, right relationship with God. I mean, this was huge. This is a huge component of the temple services to keep Israel in line. And, and, and that intimacy with the Lord. But because we know what does sin do? 
Sin cuts you off from God. Isaiah 59, it separates you from God. Something has to be done. This is what was done. Animals were losing their lives. Now, there are a few characteristics that I want to point out before we really dig into this deeper today. Characteristics that these animals that were given their life possessed that actually made them qualified to fulfill what God had called, what God had set forth in the Torah. And the first one is, is guess what? You couldn't just offer any animal. You might have had a great, you know, you had a whole bunch of donkeys. You may have had camels. You may have had pigs. None of those could be offered. Why? Only clean animals could be offered. And actually, when you go through the Torah, you'll notice God is very specific. There are different events that call for specific animals. Whether you're talking about Passover with a, with a lamb or a goat, or Yom Kippur, which calls explicitly for bulls and goats. I mean, very different. Uh, you could talk about the cleansing of a leper. You could talk about when a ruler sins, what do you kill? A he-goat. You could talk about what happens when, when a common person just sins in Israel and what would be required. We could go on and on and on. The Torah is very explicit in what animal had to be sacrificed in what situation. But one thing, and this is without exception, this is true. In every case, the common denominator of all these various animals, they all were clean. They were all clean animals. To attempt to, uh, to offer to the Most High God a pig or, or, or a donkey or anything of that measure, it wouldn't just have been rejected, not just rejected as an offering, it was an abomination to him. You would be performing an abomination. And so you need to understand as we look at the old covenant system, the animal sacrificial system under the old covenant, there are characteristics. There were characteristics, requirements that had to be met for this animal to be accepted. It wasn't just clean. There's something else that we need to consider. And that is this, Deuteronomy 17 verse 1 you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay, so it's not enough to have a clean animal for it to be accepted on God's holy altar. No, 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 no. It had to be perfect without blemish. Now that's fascinating to me because we're already looking at the characteristics that are required for a legitimate sacrifice and what do we see? We see the characteristics that Yeshua himself bore. He was clean. He was perfect. And Peter says he was a lamb without blemish. That's who he was. An acceptable sacrifice. He was acceptable before the Lord. There's something else I want to point out about animal sacrifices. And really, I want to zero in on this one point. And that is the blood. See, ultimately, the purpose for killing the animal was not simply to kill it and to offer its innards, you know, whether the liver and the kidneys on, on the altar. No, 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 no. The priests, the Lord, the offeror, they were, offer, they were after one thing. They were after the blood. The blood of the animal. And why? Well, Leviticus 17.11 tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement, for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the souls. So you think about the substitutionary atonement 
of taking this animal, what kept the animal alive, we're told, is the blood. That blood was taken. That animal literally gave its life. What kept him alive, that animal gave so that the offeror didn't have to. So that the offeror didn't have to die. The power is in the blood. The power is in the blood. See, this is why as we get into the New Testament, the writers are focused on the blood. They keep talking about the blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood. The power is in the blood. Amen? With that said, I want to really get into this and how we're going to do this today and really looking at how this has changed, the sacrificial system changed from moving from Hagar to Sarah, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Uh, I want to do so by taking you back to the writer of Hebrews. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> you, you think about how you know, people talk about Revelation today, and it's, it's a controversial book. And if you know your church history, you find that the, this was a book that was hotly debated. They did not want to include it in the canon. I mean, it swirls in controversy. I want to be very clear. On my list, it doesn't even make the top three controversial books in a historical setting. Not even close. The book of Acts would come in at number three. The book of Galatians would come in at number two. The most controversial book you will read in the New Testament, hands down, in its historical setting, is the book of Hebrews. The things that he says in there will get you stoned in the first century, as we talked about this in the, in the last part, in part 12. I mean, it's serious. Well, as we go through today, you're going to see more of that. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, this is what we read. For the Torah having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things. Now, obviously, he's alluding. The image is Yeshua himself. He is the image. This is what Torah, and Paul talks about this in Galatians. The law, it points us to Yeshua. There are things in the law. There are things in the animal sacrifices that point us to Yeshua. In, in other words, the characteristics. They're foreshadow, Okay. And they can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. Now, two things. Number one, here we are in chapter 10. We're just getting out of chapter 9. Chapter 9, the writer articulates Yom Kippur. He's going through the Yom Kippur service and talking about how Yom Kippur happens year after year. And so this is kind of the backdrop of this. And Yom Kippur was the, the, the high holy day. This was the day that the sins of Israel would be wiped away. This is the only day that the Kohen Gadol would go into the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKodeshim, and bring in blood. So this would be done. So it's, it's a very, very holy, very sanctity, uh, sanctified time. Um, in this time of humbling yourself, right? And so he's playing off of chapter 9. And so he says, continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. Now, I want to be clear. There's nothing ambiguous about the statement. There's no mystery here. The writer is showing the inadequacy of the sacrificial system under the old covenant. There's no debate. You can't get around it. You can't spin this. You can't possibly spin this. It doesn't work unless you attempt to try to discredit the book itself, which, as we have already talked about, is already being done and has already been done. Unfortunately, on the other side of the tracks, as you get into the Hebrew roots, that type of genre, there are splinter groups 
that are attempting to attack the legitimacy of this book, which is not a coincidence. But moving on to verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Now the writer is brilliant, totally inspired. And what he's doing, he's just telling you, look at the system for what it is. Look at the system. We, We did the same thing with the priesthood. You just look at its history and the Bible's screaming out and telling you, this is not God's final product. This is not his end game. There has to be more. Because would they not have ceased to be offered? It's the obvious conclusion. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. Oh, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. I mean, daily, the sacrifices are happening year after year after year. Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur. There you are, confronted with your sins. Because that was the point of the animal sacrifices. At least most of them. That was the point. To bear the sins. To keep us in check with God. But here we see, we, he's showing here one of the major problems under the old covenant sacrificial system. A reminder over and over. And then he goes on and says, for it is not possible. And that's exactly what it says. Again, you can't spin this to make it say something else. It says it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats, which is exactly what was offered on Yom Kippur, could take away sins. Think about this. And for us, hindsight's easy, 2020. But if it were possible, then why did Christ come? If we had a system that was perfect and that worked, his death would be in vain. Because we already got this. Sin's already being dealt with. There's absolutely no point for him to die for us. But the reality is, is, is it wasn't perfect. It didn't and couldn't do what it needed to do. Only the Messiah Yeshua could do that. I, I, I want to kind of spin a metaphor here for you. So that you can understand because, you know, there's a reality that the old covenant and the sacrificial system in that is glorious. There is a beautiful glory to it. And the apostle Paul talks about this and we'll get into this in the coming weeks. There's a beautiful glory to it. But what comes after is superior in glory to where it cannot even compare and I want you to think about something. When somebody gets in a car accident, a very severe, it's a life-threatening car accident. Who goes out there? Is it the surgeon? First responders. The first responders go out there. It's the EMTs. And what is their job to do? Keep them alive until I can get them to the doctor. Keep them alive till I can. You'll notice they won't drive the ambulance to the hospital and say, you know what? Let's perform surgery on this guy. Let's bring him back to health. No, they're going to send them to the person who is qualified to do that, that is trained for that, that has the tools and the skill set necessary to literally do the surgery that needed to be done to fix him and bring him back to total health. And that is exactly what the old covenant, the old sacrificial system is like. Yes, it was beautiful. It was helpful. It was needed. We needed the EMTs to come on the scene, but that wasn't the end of the story. They have to go to the doctor. And it's just, it, it's, it's a good analogy because the Lord is actually called a doctor in the Bible. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. And even in Israel today, the doctors are called Rophim, Rophe. I need a doctor. I mean, it's powerful. Okay, and so this is, this is how I want you to look at it. Like, 
uh, we don't look at it with contempt. We look at it as a beautiful thing. This is what God did. He sent out the EMTs, but then he brought us to the hospital to actually see the surgeon. And only then will we talk about it. It's interesting because we, I've you know, talked to people that have had experiences, these medical experiences, and it's, it's fascinating. Nobody ever remembers the EMTs. They remember the doctor that saved their life. The doctor saved my life, and he's been so amazing. He comes in, and he's so compassionate. He's been amazing. And this is what you see. So this is how we look at it. All right, moving on to verse 5. Therefore, when Yeshua came into the world, he said, now I want to stop here. Silly writer of Hebrews, obsessed with the word. He is obsessed with the Hebrew Bible, what he calls scripture. And here he goes again to prove his radical and crazy statements that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats. Now, historical context, really? We've been doing this for over 1,400 years, it seems to work. This seems to be how it's to be done. And here this guy comes on the scene and says, no, it's not possible. This isn't it. Well, now he's going to support this by going to the prophets, by going to the prophet David, Psalm 40. And he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Oh, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. Sacrifice and offering he didn't desire. It was a body. Now, there's some things that we have to discuss here because uh, given the fact that there are anti-missionaries out there and they are accusing the New Testament writers of shenanigans of literally changing and altering scripture, of being ignorant, just simply, we're going to change it just so we can retrofit scripture to fit Christ in the story of Christ as we've recorded. In other words, what am I saying? Well, what I'm saying is, is when you go to the Hebrew Bible and read this verse, it doesn't read the way you see it on the screen. It reads this way. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Nothing about a body. Which obviously would be glaring obvious that, you know what, this is about Yeshua. Which there's another element here that you need to understand from Orthodox Judaism. The concept of human sacrifice is anathema. It's abominable. You know why? Because they've looked at all the pagan religions who perform human sacrifice. We're not to be like the pagan nations. We are a holy nation unto God. He has established the animal sacrifices for us to do. And so what they see is they see major discrepancy here. All right? Well, where is this writer getting this from? The Septuagint, which says this, and this is not a misquote. It is a chapter earlier. The Psalms are off a chapter in Septuagint, at least some of them. Psalm 39, sacrifice and offering, thou wouldest not, but a body thou prepared me. The writer is quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And I'm going to tell this, and I, I've said this to many of you before, any serious scholar, any serious student of the word is going to utilize the resource of the Septuagint. In fact, it's going to be a very critical resource. Why? One out of every two times scripture from the Hebrew Bible is quoted, it's quoted out of the Septuagint, not out of the Hebrew. Now, when you actually study the Septuagint, you study the history and the translation and, and how that was, you discover it is divinely inspired. Meaning these men were anointed with the Ruach HaKodesh, and this is a perfect example 
This is a perfect example of this. That literally, and this is the beauty, when you're a Jewish translator and you have your scriptures in front of you and you're, you're going to go and translate it into another language, what is going to happen? The beauty of it is, is you're going to convey knowledge that you have and your understanding that you have of this passage. It is going to bleed through in the translation. And that's what's so powerful here. Because, see, these Jewish interpreters who are interpreting this understood this passage in a specific way. They understood that this is what it was saying. That a body you have prepared for me. And actually, as we go on in, in a little bit, in a little bit further into this, you're going to understand where they even got this from. But it's divinely inspired. So a body you have prepared for me. Now, there is something else that I want to point out here. I really want to, I'll take this stuff off. I want to focus on this statement. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. And I want to put this up in the Hebrew. Chafetz, for desire. Sacrifice and offering you did not take pleasure in. You did not delight in. You were not pleased in it. That's what this means. God was not pleased. He was not chafetz with the sacrifice and offerings as set up under the old sacrificial system. Well, I ask you, what would please the Lord. What would hafetz the Lord? Well, isn't this interesting? Because the prophet Isaiah tells us, and he says this, yet it hafetz the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul, okay, so not show an asham, an offering for sin. And where this is a messianic prophecy of the Messiah. This is what would please the Lord. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. It's amazing. So here you have the prophet David raising up the reality. Of, you know what? Sacrifice and offering. The Lord does not chafetz. He doesn't desire it. And the prophet Isaiah comes along and tells us exactly what he desires. The same thing that the prophet David said in regard, but a body... You have prepared literally what it says in Isaiah, a body. This is referring to an individual, his, his soul. And literally what that means, nefesh, and it means your body, your very being. You're going to be giving of yourself. I'm continuing on in chapter 10. The writer's going to go on to quote Psalm 40. There's more here he wants to extrapolate. And so this is what he says. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin... You had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come and the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. Oh, God, isn't that interesting? You can kind of understand where these translators who translated from Hebrew into Greek got this a body thou hast prepared for me. You understand this because here as you come into this prophecy, it goes on and says, lo, in the volume of the book, I have come to do your will. Clearly, you're talking about an individual. Really, really powerful. The other thing to think about is, well, how did Yeshua respond in John chapter 5 to the Jews that were not happy with him for healing on the Sabbath? It's an amazing. Go back and reread chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Exactly what it says here. Lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me. Yeshua is telling these Jews who he is. Drop down to verse 46. For you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Lo, in the volume of the book, 
it is written of me. He is declaring to his Jewish brothers who he is. He is the one being spoken of that is going to give his life. Powerful. Moving on to verse 8. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offering for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the Torah. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Now listen, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. You cannot play with this. It's unambiguous. He takes away the first covenant that he may establish the second. He takes away the old sacrificial system that he may establish the new one. This is exactly what is being conveyed. And we know this as we continue going to or going back. I'm going to drop back really quick a chapter. The writer says in that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Think about this. The fact that he's bringing a new one, it's going to make the old one obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Think about the context. Think about part 12 and what we covered. A time of transition. This epistle was roughly written about 10 years before the destruction of the temple. We are literally in a time of transition. The last 40 years was this time of transition. And isn't it amazing? The writer actually says it is becoming obsolete and it is ready to vanish away. The time is upon us. Amazing to look at this. You want to talk about being Holy Spirit inspired writer? This guy, and if most people believe it was the Apostle Paul who wrote Hebrews, he is operating on a whole nother level of insight. This guy is in the know. I mean, he is in the know. Incredible, incredible commentary. He's connecting dots all over the place. You have this clear and perfect picture of what actually happened. What actually happened? You understand this time of transition. You understand all of this. Moving on to verse 10 in Hebrews 10.10. 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Messiah Yeshua. That's the offering of the new covenant, under the new covenant. This is the new sacrificial system. It's his body. But look at what he says at the very end, once for all. Now, the writer's obsessed with this term. And just go read Hebrews 9 and going into 10. He's obsessed with this once for all. And it's a play off of what he just said in chapter 9, where he's talking about Yom Kippur, where there are sins, there's atonement happening once every year. And so you go and read this once every year. Now it goes from once every year to once and for all. It's done. There's nothing more to talk about. The issue has been dealt with in its finality. Problem has been solved. Moving on to verse 11. And every uh, Cohen stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Now think about this. He's looking at the system just over and over and over. They're offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Can never take away sins. There wouldn't be a reminder of it all the time. And you just think about something. I want you to think about this. Again, think of the system. And I ask you, what animal have you ever read about in the Torah? When the offerer would come and make the offering, or the Kohen Gadol would perform the service on Yom Kippur, I ask you, what animal was ever raised from the dead? What animal was ever said, oh, come sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? 
I know of no, I can't find it. It doesn't exist. But to the Lamb of God, to his own son, what did he say? Sit at my right hand. He resurrected him from the dead. Do you understand the massive difference here? None of these animals resurrected from the dead. Yeshua resurrected from the dead. The power is in the resurrection. And there, there, there's a little statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15 that is absolutely mind-blowing, and it ties all of this in to help you understand this. He says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Think about that concept. Without the resurrection, you're still in your sins. And look at the old, look at the old sacrificial system. Vastly different than the new one, because there's a resurrection and the new one. There's a resurrection to life. Moving on to verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Verse 15. But the Ruach HaKodesh also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, and here we go again, the writer being obsessed with scripture, he's going to take us back to Jeremiah 31, the prophecy of the new covenant. And this is what he says. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their, their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Now, what's interesting is you, you, the passage most of you are familiar with, it goes on to say, and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall every man teach his neighbor to say, know the Lord for all shall know me. Guess what? He doesn't quote any of that. He quotes the front part to put it into context. He's after one thing here. He's going to make a point as we're looking at this old sacrificial system, one that he, in his, he's losing his mind to some, is done away with. He is after one thing. So he goes to Jeremiah 31, he quotes it, and then he goes to this portion. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Interesting. What did we just read in Hebrews 10.3? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Look at the difference between the old sacrificial system and the new one. Under the old, it's a reminder. Year after year after year, there's a reminder of the sins. The new one says what? Their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, you want to talk about putting this in the context. Now, so often, as we go through the writer of Hebrews, we're looking at this and we're, we're, we're so self-absorbed with ourselves. I mean, really, when you think about it. So we read everything in the, in the context of me. And you look at uh, as of the reminder of sins every year, and we simply stop that. Oh, it's, uh, we're having our sins thrown in our face. Every year, there's a reminder of sins. It'll hold on a second. Because what we just learned in the new covenant, it's about erasing the memory of our sins from God. The father forgets. How does he forget? So you look at the old covenant, and you understand the weakness and unprofitableness of it is because God was reminded Every year the service was being performed, he was reminded of our sins. You want to put this into context, this is mind-blowing. 
And understand the difference between and, and, and how substandard that old covenant system, though glorious and beautiful, it doesn't compare to the new covenant. Because the new covenant through the Messiah, Yeshua, the Lord totally, the sins are eradicated. There's no memory of them. That's what we want. And so when you look at this, as we go, well, let's go back to, to um, okay, what we verse in? We're in 17. So here he says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I want to be clear. What does that mean to the writer? What does that mean to the writer? He's going to tell you. He's going to define why he's pulling this out. The very next verse. Now where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering of sins. You understand? How he just defined that, that their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That means it's done. That means it is finished. So when Christ was on the cross hanging and he declares it is finished, do you know how to respond? Do you know what that means? The sacrificial system is done and how sins would be atoned for, it is accomplished. In fact, as I mentioned before, this is taken right from Daniel chapter 9. And this is what we read in Daniel 9, a prophecy of what the Messiah would do. Seventy weeks are determined for your people in your holy city. Oh, to finish transgression. That's why he said it is finished. He, and multiple times as he's on the cross, he's making statements to turn you back to the prophets. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Go read Psalm 22, where you learn about the dogs surrounding him. But in the end, he's vindicated. He's resurrected. I mean, he just, so the things that he's saying on the cross, the things that he spoke in his ministry, are the things that he's pointing back to scripture that declare who he is. He is declaring on the cross what he has done. It is finished. To finish transgression, oh, and he would make an end of sins. To bring reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal a vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. This is what Yeshua did. I call this superior in every way. You know, when, when you start to put all this evidence together, I mean, you look at the prophet Jeremiah and how, what he prophesied, that their sins and their lawless deeds would be remembered no more. When you look at Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering I did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. When you look at Isaiah 53, that it pleased the Lord to make his soul an asham, a guilt offering. When you read Daniel 9, it's all declaring the same thing. That the old sacrificial system was totally inadequate and God had a better way. He would send the Messiah. He would send his own son. And when that happens, now where there is remission of these, which there is, there is no longer an offering for sin. How God would deal with sins has changed as we move from the old to the new covenant. But here's the thing, and I said this in the last message. It's not the opinions of man. It's not the opinions of the writers of the New Testament or the authors. It is a prophetic fact written by the prophets, moved by the Holy Spirit. There was a precedent set right within the original contract, right within the original document, meaning the old covenant, meaning the, the, um, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, with Jews in the first century all identified, including Yeshua, Luke 24, as scripture. The precedent was set. This is not an invention of Christians. This is not an invention of man. Psalm 103. For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 
this has been fulfilled now. It's a race from existence from the mind of the father, because what the father sees is the righteousness of his son. That's what he, if Yeshua is living in us, we have that righteousness. If he's not, you're in trouble. He will remember your sins. Now, having said that, what we're talking about, or actually what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, becomes very problematic for some believers. And this is, again, going back to part 12. I'm going to carry, you know, I, I debated about whether or not to talk about this today, but I have to. Unfortunately, you know, with, the, with, with this rekindling, this revival, this beautiful revival of believers coming into Torah and, and being zealous for the Torah, as we should be, the enemy is very slippery and he is very seductive. And he comes and he wants to take that zealousness and just pervert it just ever so slightly. And there are splinter groups, as I would call, but they're gaining momentum. I have to address this. And they are telling you that the old sacrificial system of animal sacrifice, it isn't done away. In fact, it's going to be reinstated. And not just that, they won't stop there. They're going to say it is required. It's going to be required, absolutely necessary, for believers in Yeshua to partake in those sacrifices. They're going to need to. If, if you're going to be obedient to God, this is how it's got to be. Now, you're going to see this... What I'm talking about, this splinter, this, this group's going to grow, especially in light of, it looks as though, you know, you look at Jerusalem today and the movement of the, um, the Temple Institute. They've created everything they need for the third temple. Everything's made right now. They're actually performing. How many of you have seen the mock, uh, the mock presentations this year? Um, they're actually performing services, the Passover service, the Passover ceremony. They're performing uh, the, the first fruit ceremony. I saw them both this year. It was incredible. I mean, it's a really incredible thing. There is support to rebuild the third temple from not just Jews, but from Christians all over the world. Everyone has their eyes on Jerusalem right now in anticipation for the temple to be built. The Jews are chomping at the bit to, re to actually go back to these sacrifices. It's instrumental. And in light of all of this, it is impacting people. It is impacting people. And at the same time, you have a revival of Torah. And so there are groups coming out. So when you appreciate the context that we're in today, there are groups going out that are, and I'm just going to tell you, I have had uh, some really intense and very disturbing conversations, I would say, in the last six, seven years, in light of everything that's going on. Conversations where people are appalled that I would call myself a Torah-observant believer in Yeshua and not think that the, it would be necessary to offer sin sacrifices when this temple is completed, or as they think it's going to be completed. And then, of course, I get into it. I was like, do you understand what Yeshua did? Do you understand the power of what he performed? Have you read the epistle of Hebrews? Have you read the prophets? Have you seen these things? And you would not believe the resistance that I get on this. You would not believe how that stuff just gets thrown literally under the bus. And the focus is no, the sacrifices need to come back and we need to do this. And what I want to do with you today, just to condense this down, I'm going to share with you the two passages that almost always 
are presented to me to support this. You need to be aware of this. And the first one is Acts 21. In Acts 21, the Apostle Paul, he goes up to Yerushalayim, and he goes to see James, the Nasi, the Nasi, the prince of the court, right? And James is, he's, he's glad to see him. Paul tells him, oh, James, you wouldn't believe what God is doing among the Gentiles. James responds, brother, do you know what he's doing among the Jews? There's myriads of Jews who are coming to the faith, and they're all zealous for the Torah. But guess what? They're going to hear that you've come. They're going to hear that you're here. And you know what they're saying about you? That you're telling our Jewish people to forsake Moses and to not circumcise their children. What then? Certainly the assembly is going to meet. Do what we tell you. We have four men that have taken a vow. They took a Nazarite vow. Go with them. Pay their expenses. Be purified with them. Now, the point here is what happens? What does Paul do in this circumstance? Well, in Acts 21, verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple, announced the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. And so they utilize the Apostle Paul and say, Daniel, see, this is clear. You, you, unfortunately, you don't know the New Testament. And I'm, when, I'm, when I say these things, I'm not being facetious. You, you don't understand. You don't understand Acts 21. Paul himself, and you believe in the Apostle Paul, right? You believe he's a, a good believer in Yeshua? You believe he speaks truth, that he does right? Well, he himself went into the temple and made offerings. And, oh, and keep in mind, this is post-resurrection. This is post-resurrection. So here's the proof that, you know what? With all due respect, no, the sin sacrifices are necessary. And let me be clear. The Nazarite vow, go look at the Nazarite vow. There were sin sacrifices. Had to be offered at its completion. Okay? Very, very clear on that. And so this is how that happened. Two things about this that you need to understand. Number one, we are in a period of transition. There's a reason I spent so much time on this in the last message. That you can understand that reality of being in this time of transition. It is not a surprise for me to see the Apostle Paul in sacrifice. I would expect nothing less. But I want to be clear on something. Not for a moment. There's no possible way. There's not, there's not even a fragment found anywhere in the New Testament where you will f convince me otherwise that for a second Paul thought that is what was expiating his sins and making him clean before God. Because out of his own testimony, he talks over and over again about the blood of Yeshua. And that through him, we have received the ultimate sacrifice, the forgiveness of sins. Over and over again. So we're at this time of transition. I understand that. Paul does that. The second thing is, look at the context of the passage. James came to him for a reason. He came to him so that the other Jews would not freak out and says, go do this. Go with them. He was compelled to go with them for no other reason than just to bear the testimony to show that, you know what? You're a lawful abiding Jew. You're not going against the Torah. We need you to do this. I want to share a passage with you to help put this into context. In Matthew 8, behold, a leper came and worshiped Yeshua saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so he's professing his faith. This is awesome. Good things are going to happen. Then Yeshua put out his hand and touched him and said, I be cleansed. Now, unless you understand, unless you're familiar with the Torah and you're familiar with the reality of the lepers, understand one thing. Just go read it. Don't take my word for it. There's only one person that could declare this leper unclean. 
And there was only one person that could declare him clean again. And that was the Kohen. That was the priest. That was their job. But look at what Yeshua does. And the words that he chooses is amazing. I am willing, be cleansed. He just, out of his own mouth, did what is only, according to the Torah, prescribed to the priest. Amazing thing. And in this concept, you need to understand something else. When Yeshua goes out and heals, for example, in Matthew 9, the very next chapter, instead of saying, rise up, take your mat and walk, he says, your sins are forgiven you. Every time Yeshua goes out to heal, it's because he forgave their sins. Every healing that was experienced, sins were forgiven. Absolutely monumental, all right? So that's the first thing. Now, look at this. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And Yeshua said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded. Oh, what? As a testimony to them. Not for a moment, I promise you, did this man question whether or not he was clean, which typically a leper, they were, they were convinced they were not clean until the priest, until those words came out of his mouth. And then the sin offering was given. And then they know their sins would be forgiven. See, this is interesting. Yeshua tells them as a testimony to them. This is the same scenario that is happening. We need to put this in context. Paul is not going up to the temple with no knowledge of Yeshua and what he had did. He's in full understanding. The second passage that they'll bring up is Zechariah 14. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem to go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of tabernacles, and it shall be that which uh, ever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And going to verse 20. And that day holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bulls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Yehuda shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices, shall come and take them and cook in them. And in that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. And so the mentality here is, is Daniel, see? Well, when you look at Zechariah 14, Zechariah 14 is, and across the board, everyone's pretty much in 100% agreement that this is a prophecy of the age to come. This is not in this age. We're talking about the age to come. And guess what? In the age to come, we're all still going to be needing to do sacrifices. This is evident. In response to that, let me first say we will be sacrificing in the age to come. No issue there. Question becomes, will we be offering sacrifices for sin? This is the concern. The asham, the chatat. Are these the sacrifices that are going to be offered? And I'm going to absolutely, without reservation, tell you absolutely not. We're not going to be doing that. How do we know? I mean, just think this through for a second. In the age to come, we know one thing. There's going to be no evidence of sin whatsoever. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. There's no evidence. It's erased. It, Peter talks about that the earth and the works that are in it are going to burn up, right, in Second Peter? Because everything that is not holy, that it, everything's going to be tested with fire. And if it's not holy, it's not going to make it. 
It is not going to be. So there's going to be no evidence of sin whatsoever. But what did the writer of Hebrews say? When you offer a sacrifice for sin, there's a reminder of it year after year after year. You're reminded of it. Is there going to be a reminder? Is God going to leave himself a mark or a reminder of our sin? Absolutely not. Let me take this a step further. I want to show you some traditional Jewish thought on the matter. And what the rabbis think of this. And the following commentary comes from Dr. Richard Swartz. Listen carefully to what he says. Many Jewish scholars, such as Rabbi uh, Abraham Yitzhak Koch, believe, believe that the animal sacrifices will not be reinstated in messianic times, even with the reestablishment of the temple. They believe that at that time, human conduct will advance to such high standards that there will no longer be a need for animal sacrifices to atone for sins. There's more to this commentary I'm going to share with you. I want to first point out something. In traditional, even in religious Orthodox Judaism, they are awaiting the Messiah to come. And what's fascinating is they know when he comes, there's going to be a dramatic, it's going to be radical. There's going to be a radical change where there isn't going to be animal sacrifices anymore. This is what they're expecting. This is the expectation. Yes. And the standard of living, the conduct of man is going to rise so high. What do we learn in the New Testament over and over again? That we are going to be transformed in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For this corruptibility is going to put on incorruptibility. This mortality, immortality. Yet there's going to be a dramatic shift as we go from this age to the other. The catch here is this. There was two comings of the Messiah. The Jewish people, they missed the first coming. They're picking up on it now because Jews are coming to faith in Yeshua. And they're acknowledging that coming. But think about this comment. They're writing it in the context that the Messiah hasn't come. But when he comes, this is what's going to happen. So this is not a thought that is foreign either to Judaism or to Scripture itself. Now, it actually goes on and says, Non-animal sacrifices, such as the mincha, grain offering, to express gratitude to God would remain... See, there are going to be sacrifices in the kingdom like the mincha and maybe the nesech, which would be the drink offerings, right? There is a midrash that states, in messianic era, all offerings will cease except the thanksgiving offering, which will continue forever. I agree with that. This seems to be consistent with the belief of Rabbi Koch and others based on the prophecy of Isaiah eleven six, And we could say Jeremiah 31, and we could say Daniel 9, and we could say Psalm 40. That people and animals will be vegetarian in that time, and none shall hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains. See, there, there's a concept, and it's Jewish, very Jewish concept, that we're going to return to the Garden of Eden. The concept where there was no death. Where the lion lays down with the calf, and the lamb, the wolf. Things are different. The Messiah, when he comes, he institutes something completely different. And let me just point out, for the last about 1900 years, there has been no temple. There's been no sacrifices. And yet I can promise you there is total atonement. Because he, he was killed once and for all. His sacrifice, it means something. And we need to be able to articulate this. We need to be able to understand it first and foremost for ourselves. Hebrews 10, 18, going back. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Ask yourself, has there been remission of sins? When you call upon the name of Yeshua, 
Is there forgiveness? If there is, then there's no longer an offering for sin. Moving on to verse 19. We're almost done. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Yeshua, not the bulls and goats and lambs, but the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us. And one thing that you read about, and you read about this in the prophets, and you read about in the prophet Isaiah, the Lord would do a new thing. Now it's destabilizing. It's jarring. But he did a new thing through Yeshua. And he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a Kohen Gadol over the house of God. And this will be the last passage we cover today. Now look at this. Let us draw near. And pick up on the little details in these words because they're not a coincidence. What were the children of Israel doing when they were making offerings? Read the book of Leviticus. Okay, isn't this interesting? The book of Leviticus in Hebrew is called what? Vayikra. And he called. As you open up in chapter 1, you're hit right off the bat with this word, the Hebrew, karban. The very root is karab. Do you know what that means? Draw near. And then it goes on to express all the offerings of the Lord, chapters 1 through 7. So as they're offering the sacrifices, they are drawing near to God. God has called, and they are drawing near. Today, we draw near. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. So it happens through Yeshua. This is the offering by which we draw near, that we have access behind the veil in the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies, because he's resurrected. He's on the throne. Amen? 